This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast, where I'm your host, board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. And this is episode 22. I can't believe we're already here. And this one's about oral sex. And is it safe? And are there dangers you need to know about? Let's have a listen. Hi, um, my name is Laura. I'm calling because I had a question that I'd love answered on the podcast. I am relatively new to oral sex. Um, and I was curious, I'd heard rumors that um, you can get throat cancer or some kind of, you know, like that it's just not really great to be doing oral sex and meaning specifically like the, the woman or female uh, going down on a male. And so I just wanted to get some more education around that. Like, is it safe to do and is it safe for me? Is there anything I should be thinking about around that? I am in a committed you know, marriage. And so it's a little bit different than maybe just if I was doing this with anybody. But um, I think just in general, some like actual knowledge around like the safety of it and all of that would be super helpful. Thank you so much. Laura, thank you so much for your question. What we are going to do is we're going to talk about it today and it's oral sex and what it is and what you need to know about it. And I love that you're asking this question because this might be something that people might feel embarrassed about, or you never got taught in school, let's be real, or you might be afraid to bring it up to your doctor because you feel like you've already got other things to worry about and you think it's a stupid question. There are no stupid questions here, my friends. So we're talking about it and you're going to leave this episode feeling informed and empowered. So oral sex, it's a type of non-coital activity, which is a fun medical term for sexual activity that doesn't mean a penis goes in a vagina. And many people, young people especially, think that these kinds of sexual activities are safer. Hmm, are they? Oh, and uh, for your information, FYI, oral sex is the umbrella term that includes cunnilingus, which is mouth on vagina, fellatio, which is mouth on penis, and analingus, which is mouth on or around the anus. The colloquial term is rimming, and there's lots of other terms for all of these words, but now you know. So when I say oral sex, it could mean one or all of those. And before I jump in, I want to start off with a question of my own and ask a gyno, do you know, question that I'll ask now, and then we'll answer it later in the podcast. So here we go. Which of the following can be used to make a homemade dental dam to make oral sex safer? Is it A, a Ziploc bag, B, a condom, or C, plastic wrap? Okay, we'll get back to that later in the episode. Okay, let's get back to the question. Is oral sex safe or not? Can it give you cancer? And regarding cancer, unfortunately, the answer is yes. So those rumors you talked about, Laura, they're unfortunately true. So many people choose oral sex because it seems safer. And that is true if your biggest concern is pregnancy. However, STIs are what we call sexually transmitted infections. And if you want to know why I say that, not STDs, have a listen to episode five, STIs versus STDs. What's in a name? So STIs can and are spread by oral sex, whether it's, you know, mouth on vagina, mouth on penis, mouth around it, like all the things they can spread this way. 
And these infections can be spread if you're on the giving end or the receiving end. So let's jump into some oral sex facts and figures, aka who is doing this? Like, is this really something we need to be talking about? Yeah, we do, because it's super common. And oral sex can be used as part of foreplay, part of penetrative sex, or as a replacement for penetrative sex. It is practiced by all people, all genders, all sexual orientations. So like I said, it's common. Hold on to your hats for some statistics here. 67% of American teens have experienced oral sex with the average age that teens start to give and receive it, 16 years old. But that's the average with 12% of teen girls and 10% of teen boys first experiencing it at age 15. And yeah, there are smaller numbers, but still numbers of teens who experience it at younger ages. Now, does that seem young to you? I mean, to me personally, like 16 doesn't seem like it seems like that just that tracks. That makes sense, right? Those younger ages, I, yeah, you know, it's all relative. And as an OBGYN, I'd say, yeah, we see this. And this is also why you need to be talking about these things. By the way, check out episode 10, Is Teenage Birth Control a Free Pass for Sex? Where I talk about not just birth control and talking about those things, but also like why we need to be talking about oral sex and STIs and, and all these things in people who are younger than 16, 17, 18, because we know it's going to happen. And so let's prepare them for it, right? But don't forget the adults are doing it too. And I will have the references in my show notes here. It's not that I just made up these numbers. Um, so when it comes to giving oral sex, 59% of women or those assigned female at birth have reported giving it while only 52% of men. Why the gap? And data is only as good as the people who answer the questions. So keep in mind that while these are the reported numbers, you just have to think about the questions themselves. How are they asked? You know, is somebody maybe reporting that they did something or they didn't because they think that they should or shouldn't have? There can be a lot of shame for some men in certain communities where like going down on a woman is seemed as like not manly and you shouldn't do it. And so they might report that they aren't doing it. Just know these numbers are the best information we have. And when it comes to receiving oral sex, only 44% of women and 63% of men have received oral sex. Now, these numbers don't add up when you go like back to the numbers of who's giving it. So a little curious, but let's also talk about the oral sex gap, which is why do over 60% of men get to receive it and only 44% of women? I don't, I don't like that. Topic for another day. Uh, but for those people who do partake in the oral sex practice, the vast majority report it as enjoyable. 91% of women enjoy receiving it. That seems about right. And 61% of women and those people with a vagina find oral sex as enjoyable as vaginal sex. I actually am surprised. I would think that number would actually be higher because we know that 80% of people with a clitoris need it stimulated in some way to have an orgasm, meaning that just putting something in the vagina isn't going to work for the vast majority of us. And so I would have thought that oral sex, more people would have rated it as enjoyable, or maybe, maybe they, the question should have been more enjoyable. I don't know. The bottom line is like a lot of people like it. 52% of men enjoy giving it. Guys, come on. Only 50%. Come on. Like think about your partner. Think about Anyway, whatever. It is what it is. But the thing about oral sex, even though I'm joking about, you know, you should do it or whatever, like only do it if you want to do it. And I'm highlighting this because 33% of Americans have felt pressure, either socially or from societal expectations to have oral sex, meaning that they think that it's like what you should do or it's the next thing you should do. And that's true. Like, let's be real. Anybody who's ever watched porn, what's the formula, right? It starts off with fellatio woman going down on a guy. And then it very, like, like it's like a, it's a formula. And it seems to be that this is how it goes. 
this is the routine, this is what guys want. And so, especially for young people who might not be getting any guidance on how porn is not real and doesn't represent like the majority of relationships, they might think that, well, this is what you have to do if you're participating in sex. So if they feel the pressure to do it, even if they don't want to, they might do it because of that reason. What about analingus, also known as rimming? 51% of women don't enjoy receiving it, which is much higher than the 9% of women who don't enjoy receiving oral sex. So that also makes sense to me too. So basically a lot of people do it. A lot of people like it, but is it always risk-free? Sorry. Nope. It's not. Obviously that's why we're here, right? So here are some bugs that can join the oral sex party. HPV, also known as the human papillomavirus, gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes syphilis, HIV, trichomoniasis, a lot. So, and those are all like what we think of as typical STIs, but there are also other infections that we don't typically think of in that group, but they can also come into play, especially if you're near the anus, which is yes, where feces, AKA poop lives. So we're talking about intestinal infections because these are transmitted the fecal oral route, which means poop to mouth, anus to mouth. So intestinal infections like salmonella, shigella, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, E. coli, and even parasites like giardia. So I'm really trying not to be a downer on this episode and scare you off of oral sex, but we got to keep in mind that one in five people on any given day in the United States have an STI. And with half of new infections happening in people between the ages of 15 and 24, it's important we talk about it and we talk about it early and often and we do it in a shame-free way and we just have these honest conversations because you don't want to get herpes from oral sex and you don't want to get E. coli, right? Like these things make sense. So let's talk about it. Let's break down the shame and stigma and then you decide what feels right for you. And I want to talk next about HPV, which is the human papillomavirus. It's the first one I mentioned. And the reason being with that scary statistic I shared with one in five people having an STI, like the vast majority of them, it's HPV. And that's because it's the most common STI in the United States with 42.5 million cases occurring in the US the last time we collected this data. This was in like 2018. And so at that moment in time, almost 43 million people have HPV. 80% of us at some point in time who are sexually active will have it. I call it the common cold of the vagina because it is super common. It's as common as having a cold. And also to try to normalize it. Like if you have it, it just means you're having sex. It doesn't mean you're a bad person or you did something wrong. It's just the name of the game when something is out there as prevalent as HPV is. HPV is not just one virus, one type. There's over a hundred different strands or different types with about 40 of them spreading from the genital mouth contact. And those can cause two different kinds of things. They can cause genital warts and they can cause cancer. And when we say cancer, most people often go, think right to, you know, go right to cervical cancer because that's the one that we tend to talk about more. But these strains of viruses can also cause cancer of the vagina, the vulva, the penis, the anus, and the throat. And that matters if we're talking about oral sex, right? Every year, HPV causes about 47,000 new cancers in the United States, with about 26,000 of those in women, most of those are cervical cancer, and 21,000 mostly in men, and those are mostly throat or what we call oropharyngeal cancer, so in the back of the throat. You may say 47,000 is not a whole lot. I still think it's a lot, especially when a lot of these can be prevented by things that I'll talk about later, but you're right, it's not like breast cancer. That's a lot more common than this, but it's still significant. 
And while I talked about how 80% of us have HPV at some point in time, that's with the vast majority of it being spread sexually. So talking about vagina, vulva, penis, that kind of thing. Also though, about 10% of men and about three and a half percent of women have oral HPV at some point in time in their life. I didn't know this until I was actually looking into diving into the research for this episode. I really didn't know that. 10% actually seems pretty high for me, for, for guys. And I, I do wonder about the disparity. Why do they have a higher rate than women or those assigned female at birth? I don't, I don't know that. I don't have the answer to that right now. The good news is with oral HPV, just like when we talk about HPV related to the virus that's in the cervix that can eventually cause cervical cancer, the vast majority of these will clear, meaning that your body clears it and renders it inactive, the HPV virus. And usually this will clear over about one to two years, but not for everyone. And we can't predict who, and there's like nothing you can do, like a medicine that you can take, I should say, to like clear it more quickly. And I'll talk more about ways to decrease the risk of it and help with clearance, but there's no like magic drug that you can take. So yes, these oral HPV strands can cause cancer in the mouth, in the throat, in the tongue, the base of the tongue, the tonsils. And in fact, HPV is responsible for 70% of these kinds of cancer, the oropharyngeal or the cancer in the back of the throat in the United States. So it's a huge problem. And while it is super slow growing, just like with cervical cancer, it progresses over years and years and years, it's still significant. And that clearance that I mentioned earlier the way that your body basically has an immune response and gets rid of it, that is much less likely to happen if you smoke or use tobacco. This is true not only of oral HPV, but also vaginal, cervical, penile HPV, same kind of thing. And the main way that I explain it to people is that smoking is bad, obviously, for lots of reasons. And I'm talking about smoking, vaping, tobacco, all that stuff. Not only is that a carcinogen in and of itself, but it also hinders your immune system from being able to fight in the same way. And so that's why we think that it makes it less likely that your body's able to clear that HPV virus. Now, when it comes to HPV testing, because you might say, okay, cool, Dr. Jen said that, you know, 80% of us have it at some point in time, like in our vaginas or our penises, but, you know, up to 10% of guys have it in their mouth. I'll just get tested and then I'll know that I don't have it and then I'll sleep better at night and we'll be able to have oral sex, you know, without new production. It'll be cool. I'm sorry, but there is no approved test for HPV in males, where wherever it is, or any test for anybody in the mouth or the throat. Super annoying. I don't understand why we don't have that. It's not clear to me. We do, however, have FDA approved HPV testing for women and people with a cervix. And we do that in people ages 30 and over. And usually that's done together as part of a pap smear or a pap test, because we know when we combine the two together more accurately predicts and gives us more useful information about your risk of getting cervical cancer, which is the whole reason we do pap testing. We don't do it in younger women, younger than 30, because we have really good data to show that since so many of us have it, if we tested people younger than that, we would be over-treating because the vast majority of us will clear it. And so that's why we wait. I'm happy to go into more detail about pap tests and all that kind of thing on another episode. If you've got questions about that, go ahead and call me in at the Viva La Vulva voicemail. We've got the number on the podcast episode, show notes. And I'll talk about it at the end of the episode too. But I would like to say that it's really annoying that there's not a swab that we can do a mouth swab or a penis swab that's approved, but we don't. And so that's why prevention is really as important as it is. When it comes to HPV in terms of diagnosing it, the most common symptom is no symptoms at all, but they can cause warts, growths, bumps, sores. You know, when you think specifically about oral HPV causing things like throat cancer, cancer at the back of the throat, things that you would want to keep an eye out for would be 
maybe you've got throat infections that you keep being treated for. You know, your doc keeps thinking, oh, it's a sore throat and I'll give you antibiotics and it doesn't get better. Or if you see any lumps or bumps that don't seem right, or you're feeling like you can't swallow. I'm not trying to freak everybody out here. If you're like, I feel something in the back of my throat, it must be cancer. It's still really rare, but the way that you know to look out for something is that you just, you're in tune with your body. The treatment depends on what kind of strain it is and what you're treating. When it comes to warts, we do have different treatments, whether it's placing topical medicine or freezing them off or removing them. But when it comes to the HPV itself, it's not like we give you a medicine that makes the HPV, like the virus itself, go away. And when it comes to cancer of the throat, and I'm focusing on that in this episode because we're talking about oral sex, that's a bad cancer. It is hard to treat and it's really miserable because it can involve a combination of radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, other immunotherapies. And as you can imagine, your throat's important, right? Like it makes eating really hard. You might need different ways of getting nutrition into your body. If you're losing part of your tongue, it's, it's just, it's a nasty cancer. It's not great. And that's why prevention is so important. So let's talk about it. So how do you prevent or decrease your risk of getting HPV in the first place? Number one, if I can sing it, if the clouds can open up and the sun shines down, the answer is HPV vaccination. That's where we go like, ah, it's literally an anti-cancer vaccine. It's FDA approved. You can start at age 11 to 12. It's usually when we, when we give it, but you can give it younger if you need to. And it's now FDA approved up to the age of 45. doesn't mean you can't get it past that. It just means that that's what it's FDA approved for. Obviously, it's better to get it before you are exposed to any HPV strains, which is why we really stress giving it in kids who are younger. Because if you're listening, you're a parent and you're thinking, but my kid's never going to have sex. Well, they are at some point, probably. Um, but the reason we're giving it that young, yes, it's it's to get it in them before they're exposed. But also it's because we know their immune systems work better and react better when they get these vaccines when they're younger, meaning that they have a more robust response. And we love that because it means that it lasts longer. And it protects them longer when, yes, they might be 20, 30, 40 and having sex. I know you don't want to think about it as a parent myself, but they are. And you did too, right? You were kid once too. So it's important to think about that. So HPV vaccination and then practicing safe sex, which brings us to the gyno, do you know, question. So let's answer it. Okay. Let me say the question one more time. Which of the following can be used to make a homemade dental dam to make oral sex safer? it A, a Ziploc bag, B, a condom, or C, plastic wrap? What do you think it is? If you said B, a condom, you're right. But actually, you could probably use all of these, but B is probably the best one. Now, if you're thinking, Dr. Jen, what the heck is even a dental dam? I gotcha. Think of a dental dam as a sheet of latex, but they also have some in polyurethane if you have latex allergy, and it's meant to create a barrier. So think of like a tissue. It's a little bit smaller than that. And you place it over the vagina, or excuse me, over the vulva. I said vagina, and I'm a gynecologist. The vagina's on the inside, so shame on me. Although, nope, there's no shame. We catch ourselves. See, even I'm habituated into saying vagina. So you place it over the vulva if you're going to be, let's say, performing sex on somebody with a vulva, and you have to hold it in place, and it creates a physical barrier, but they're thin enough that you can still have sensation and clitoral sensation and all that good stuff. So think of it like a condom for oral sex on people with a vulva and for anuses, no matter your sex. So it creates this barrier, but you need to use it correctly in order for it to work. So before any touching, any contact of any kind, these expire just like condoms do. So you have to check that. You got to make sure they're not ripped. Only use one side. I know this sounds really obvious, but don't flip it over. Otherwise, you're just exposing yourself. And they're single use only. So you can use these, but in a pinch, if you can't find one or you don't have one, you can use a condom. So what you do is you just take the condom out. You want to use a non-lubricated condom because the lube can 
cause it to slip on usage, or if it's on the side where your mouth is, that can cause throat irritation and you don't want to be swallowing a whole bunch of lube. So what you do is you cut off the tip of the condom and you cut off the end and you unroll it and voila, dental dam. And using these can decrease your risk of STI exposure. Now, it may not completely protect you against the ones like HPV and HSV or the herpes virus if the lesions extend beyond the covered area, but it drastically reduces your risk, especially of the other ones that I mentioned, and I will talk more about in just a little bit. Um, and a little tip here too, do not use oil-based lubricants with them, just like with condoms, because it can make the material weaker, it can lead to breakage, and obviously then it's not going to work. So I said a condom was best, but in a pinch, you could use plastic wrap like saran wrap. It's probably good, but we don't have a ton of data. And, you know, even a Ziploc bag is probably better than nothing. But just when you think if you've got your choice, you know, you've got all these things just out there in the bedroom, ideally reaching for a condom is probably the best bet, but something's better than nothing. And you know what? Let's take a quick moment now for class is in session where we discuss this week's teachable moment that I bet you didn't get in health class in high school. This week's teachable moment is about dental dams and why the heck do we even call them this? So this guy, Sanford Barnum, I don't know if it's like the Barnum and Bailey circus guy, like was this his side gig? I don't know. Anyway, he invented the rubber dental dam in the 1860s and the point was to keep teeth that dentists were working on dry. So it helped to keep away the saliva and keep the area dry during dental surgery. And then according to my research, this guy, Clive Woodworth, who was working at an Australian company that made condoms called Glide Health, said that he was at a conference and he was approached by a few women who identified as lesbians saying, hey, we need something. And this was in the early 1990s. So this was right after the acute breaking out in the 1980s of the AIDS epidemic, the early 90s, this was still very much a thing, unfortunately. And so these women were like, we need ways to keep ourselves safer too. Like there's no products for us when it comes to keeping us safe during oral sex. And so at this conference, they asked him to do something. And he created the modern day, what we still call it a dental dam, but obviously marketed for use during oral sex and not during dental procedures. And they really, they haven't changed that much since they were first made. And they're really not like selling flying off the shelves at places like sex shops or even when Planned Parenthood gives them away. Um, even a lot of drugstores have stopped carrying them because they tend not to sell that well. And it might be because they're just like functionally not that awesome, right? You gotta hold them in place. They're expensive. They're like way more expensive than regular condoms. That's your lesson for dental dams. Class dismissed. And this actually brings me to this week's Clitorally segment, where I call out things that make me go, are you clitorally literally kidding me? And this week's is about a product. And you know, when I tend to do these segments, I, I hate most products out there and most things out there on social media because they're usually very much based in shame and based in no evidence. But I clitorally have to say, I think this product is pretty, pretty cool. So let's have a listen. These are oral sex undies. They're super thin latex undies that you wear while someone's going down. They're STI protection. They are sexy kinky lingerie that you can wear in the bedroom or out of the bedroom. They're a way to feel more comfortable and less exposed during oral. They're a way to explore latex and BDSM. They're a way to enjoy mess-free oral even when you're on your period. And they're a great way to explore rimming without worrying about 
They're wearable, hands-free protection that fit like your favorite undies, so you can have oral whenever you want to. Okay, so I kind of love these. And maybe I'm just not that cool. I didn't know these existed until I was, again, researching this episode. So they're called laurels. And it's just like she said, there are these latex undies. <laughs> they're actually really cute and they come in different colors. And so it's the idea that you can buy underwear for oral sex. And they're actually FDA cleared for STI protection. They're not approved, but they're cleared. But that's pretty darn good. And so dental dams are cool, right? They have a role, especially if you are having oral sex in a pinch and you don't have these or you want to be safe and you have a condom and you cut it and you use that. But these kind of take the cake because they're literally like these underwear that you can wear. And you don't have to hold them in place so they don't slip. And for people who want to practice oral sex and decrease their risk of getting an infection or, you know, oral sex on their period. And if you're listening to this and you're like, ew, gross, like, no, no, let's just, let's take that thought. Let's look at it with curiosity. And then let's just push it away because we don't get to judge what people do in the bedroom. And like she said, you know, if you want to practice a little BDSM, like it's a fun little, I don't know. I think it's cool. Or like, what if your partner has stubble and when he goes down on you, you get like a huge rash on your thighs. And guess what? I reached out to Laurels on their Instagram account at my Laurels. And I said, I love your product. And I think my listeners need a little discount. And they said, you betcha. So if you use the code Dr. Jen, that's D-R-J-E-N, you'll get 15% off of their website, mylaurels.com. I'm not getting paid for this. I just reached out. They're really cool. They want to help you out. And we all want to have happy, healthy, awesome safe sex. So here you go, listeners. Okay. So I have talked a ton about HPV and throat cancer and ways to stay safe in general during oral sex, but what about the other possible infections I mentioned? So let's talk about them. All right. Let's talk about chlamydia. Yes, it can cause infections in the throat and left untreated. You could spread it to others, including to their genitals. And so when we're talking about women and people with a vagina, chlamydia can cause pelvic inflammatory disease, which can lead to things like infertility and pelvic pain. And in guys and people with a penis, it can cause epididymitis. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> but that's where the ducts in the testicle can get inflamed and scarred. And that can also lead to fertility issues. I think we can all agree those are not good things. And then we've got gonorrhea, which is the same as chlamydia, but it can also spread through the body systemically and cause even worse issues like rashes and joint pain. This is called disseminated gonococcal infection. It can also infect your heart. Um, these are serious and potentially life-threatening conditions. So overall, the risks are probably pretty low, but they're still there. And I feel like, hey, if we can be safe, we should. We can't forget our friend syphilis, which can show up as having sores either around the genitals or also around the mouth. And so you really should get checked out if you notice new or painful sores or ulcers in your mouth, your throat, your lips, near the genitals, near the anus. If you've got a rash on your body, especially if you've got rashes in the palms of your hands, on the soles of your feet, flu-like symptoms. I know these are all sort of vague, but if you've got these, you should get it checked out because syphilis is really bad if it's left untreated. And so far, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, these are all really easily treated with medicines. So knowing what they are, getting diagnosis, getting treated, really awesome. Which is slightly different when it comes to herpes. So there's two different strains of herpes out there, HSV1 and 2. They can cause sores in the mouth and the genitals. The most common symptom is really no symptoms at all. This one's a little different in that it's not curable. There are medicines that you can take to decrease your risk of spreading and decrease your occurrence of outbreaks, but we don't have a cure. So this is one for sure. If you've got cold sores, and especially, and just so you know, cold sores, that's the herpes virus. So if you've been told you have cold sores, but you don't have herpes, like we use the term interchangeably. So if you have sores in your mouth, please do not perform oral sex on your partner. Or if you do, do it in a way that is safe, but know that if you want to be really, really safe, you just 
you don't do it when you've got active sores. And then we've got HIV, which the risk with oral sex is actually probably pretty darn low. And this is one STI where we actually have really good data to say that oral sex is a much lower risk when it comes to transmitting this as compared to anal or vaginal sex. You know, compared to the others, like the ones I've talked about already, we don't have a ton of good data. And when it comes to HIV, the viral load or how much of the virus you have in your body matters. So if you have HIV or you're with a partner who has HIV and their viral load is undetectable, that means there's zero, no risk of transmission. And I love that. That is phenomenal news, especially when you go back to what I was talking about when we were talking about AIDS and HIV in the 80s and 90s. We're in a much different world right now when it comes to HIV, which is wonderful. And lastly, trichomoniasis. It's a little parasite, a little STI could possibly infect the throat, not a ton of data. So really, let's bring this back to Lauren's question, which is her saying, I'm in a monogamous relationship. So like, what's the answer for me? So the answer for you, Lauren, might be different. Might be very different when you are with the same partner and maybe you guys have both been tested. That would be awesome. But you know that you can't test for everything. And that's a whole, we could talk about STI testing another day. I would love to talk about that topic at some point. So if somebody's got it, go ahead and shoot me a voice DM or call into me. But the bottom line is, is that obviously you're at much higher risk for either spreading or getting an STI from any kind of sex, including oral sex, if you have more than one partner. And so in a monogamous relationship, you may decide that, yeah, we're not using dental dams. Like I'm with the same person. We don't have anything. It's a very different story, but if you aren't in a monogamous relationship, and there's no shame if you aren't, you may want to consider some of the things I talked about to decrease your risk and to know that there are some risks out there and you decide what feels right for you. So we covered a lot today. And I love this question, Lauren. Thank you so much for calling in and giving me the opportunity to answer it. So as a quick summary, lots of people give and receive oral sex in some form or another, and most of us like it. And there's no shame in that. The idea that it's safer really only applies to not getting pregnant because infections can and do spread during oral sex with oropharyngeal or throat cancer being an example of a cancer caused by an STI that can be spread via these practices. But there are ways to make it safer, such as testing and practices like using protection and maybe buying those really cute underwear that I highlighted in my clitoral segment. And like everything that happens in the bedroom, you should never feel pressured to perform or have oral sex. And if that is a situation that's happening, then I really strongly suggest you take a step back and reevaluate if your partner really has your best interest at heart. This was super fun and feel free to throw me any other questions you've got in my way. I would love to answer them. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body, and we're going to answer them. 